so I would say um, that a lot of people coming to this course, this was probably one of the bigger uh, thoughts in your mind was about heaven and hell, um, because that's really um, uh, kind of a big topic when we talk about the afterlife and journey of the soul. That's what a lot of people think about, a lot of people are worried about heaven and hell. And so we are going to get the unique Jewish view on heaven and hell. Now, I do want to say possibly, I don't know for sure, possibly you've heard some of these ideas before that I will teach today. I don't know. Uh, but as I always like to say, teachers teach information and real teachers teach people. It's not just about giving over the information, but it's about how that information relates to our lives. And that's really the most important thing. Um, so one thing I want to tell you is if you came to hear the specifics about what heaven and hell look like and uh, how hot the fires are and uh, how wonderful the ice cream in paradise is, you will be severely disappointed. Um, and that is because we will never truly understand. We will never, ever truly understand what heaven and hell is. Some people think hell is a place where there's lots of fire. Other people think hell is a place where there's a chalkboard and someone's scratching on the chalkboard. Other people think hell is a place where there's a bunch of um, uh, uh, fi uh, fire detectors. What are they called? Fire detectors? Yeah, that are, that are, that are beeping and you can't find the batteries. Uh, there's all different <laughs> explanations of heaven and hell. But really, heaven and hell are non-physical. They are non-physical places. I was studying with a bar mitzvah boy and I asked him, where's heaven? He said, no, heaven, you, you go up, you get to heaven. I said, where's hell? You dig, you get to hell. I said, okay, if heaven, I said, if heaven is up, right? If you have to travel upwards to get to heaven. So let's say we're here in America where we travel up, you're in Australia, you have to travel down. Uh, you know, heaven is that way. So where's heaven? Is heaven up or is it down, right? Um, and so obviously heaven and hell are non-physical places. Uh, good to see you, Larry. Obviously heaven and hell are non-physical places. And therefore we will not get into a full description of what they look like because truthfully we cannot really understand it. We cannot fathom that reality. And on that note, I am going to share a uh, video. I also forgot to mention today's class is uh, sponsored for the uh, speedy recovery of Margalit Bat Miriam. May she have a Rafuashlema complete recovery and be healthy enough to join us for classes once again. Okay. Uh, so this is the video. I'm going to mute myself for a moment and uh, you can change the volume on your computer, but uh, this is, uh, will explain to us this idea that I was just mentioning a moment ago. Birth and death are as contradictory as night and light. But they are strangely associated with an identical Hebrew word, kever. Kever means a tomb where a body is buried. But kever also means a womb where life is formed. A womb is a gateway to life, while a tomb is a gateway to afterlife. But is there an afterlife? Does laying a body to rest in a grave mark the absolute end? If it were within our power to interview a soul, we would undoubtedly glean insight 
into afterlife. Instead, we have chosen to eavesdrop on a set of twins in their mother's womb to shed some light on the before life. Hey twin, I'm scared of birth. Why? It's the end of existence. We get ejected. We're finished. I'm also anxious, twin, but I'm not scared. Birth is supposed to be a transition to the real life. Huh. Don't give me the hiccups with your afterbirth real-life fantasies. How can life be supported without an umbilical cord and amniotic fluid? Well, maybe it's a radically different form of life. Maybe we won't need the cord. I wish you were right. I keep kicking that thing away from my neck. Stop spinning for a minute and imagine, twin. After birth, we will enter a ginormous universe filled with light and with air that we will breathe through our mouths. Come on, grow some brain cells, will you? Mouths are not for breathing. Besides, if your postnatal paradise existed, why has no one ever returned from that realm? Forget it. Once we leave here, we collapse into cold, dry nothingness and wither into eternal gloom. I don't think Mother would allow that to happen. She nurtures us in this cozy womb. She sends us nutrients for months on end. For what purpose? Just to end it all with birth? No, Mother has greater plans for us than that. Now you're beginning to sound infantile. Do you see a mother lurking in some corner of the womb? Not a trace. Show me a mother. And as for your nutrients, can't you feel that annoying cord? Don't exchange empirical for fantastical. Thankfully, these two delightful infants made it safely to the other side. They grew up in the universe that one had described and the other had denied. And until today, they continue their clamorous debate. It is only that the topic of contention has slightly shifted from is there life after the womb to is there life after the tomb? And the point of that video is to express really just as the children in the womb could not truly fathom uh, life after the womb, uh, we cannot fathom life after we pass away. Um, as much as we have descriptions of it, they are this physical descriptions of, of non-physical places. And truthfully, we can never fully grasp uh, what goes on over there. Um, you know, the example is science fiction. Science fiction writers, their idea is to take, you know, science as it is today. Akatura is to take science as it is today and build upon it and try and predict what the future is going to look like. So you read a science fiction book, there's flying cars and, and things like that. Now, science fiction, certain things they never predicted. Why? Because science fiction can only build on things that we have right now. For example, a flying car. Well, we have airplanes that fly and we have cars and we have cars. So put two and two together, you can have flying cars. Or for example, uh, they predicted that you'd have one day a television on your phone, but that was a corded phone with a television screen on it. They never imagined a smartphone that can connect through the internet to get to the whole world, you know, um, through cellular towers. That was never predicted in any science fiction writing because it was beyond our thought. In fact, the internet in general was not predicted by science fiction writers. Um, they had 
cool ideas, but nobody predicted the internet because it was way beyond our uh, imagination. We couldn't imagine it. We can only imagine things that relate to our reality. And so similarly, when it comes to heaven and hell, we obviously think, oh, heaven is up there and hell is down there because those are physical descriptions. To describe a spiritual place uh, is, in a sense, well beyond our um, full capacity to understand. That being said, so although I'm not going to get in to explain uh, how physically heaven and hell look, because it's not really possible, we will explain what the Jewish view of heaven and hell is. And based on that, we will have a theological and a philosophical a good understanding of heaven and hell, and it will lead us in how we live our lives. So before we continue, um, I would like to hear in the chat or whatnot, um, what idea enters your mind when you hear the word hell? You can put in the chat or you can uh, say fire, right? Fire is the most common one. Everybody thinks fire, right? Uh, by the way, oddly enough, um, there's also what's called in Jewish, um, uh, Jewish uh, literature, there's also called the hell of snow. Um, go to Chicago, you find out about it. But no, there is, uh, there is a place called Gehenna Shalshalag, the, the hell of snow. It's interesting that we all think there's only fire. There's also snow, but anyways, um, Obviously, they're both non-physical, but yes. I guess it would depend on what hell is for you. I mean, you know. You're you're saying for a Floridian, it's snow, and for a New Yorker, it's Florida. Theoretically, I mean. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, uh, okay, someone else wrote here torture. Okay, yeah, torture. Yep. Yes, Linda. You got to unmute. I think it would be a condition of unease or anxiety or anxiety. So you're going to go with psychological torture. Yeah. Yeah. Cause your body isn't there. So. Right. Right. It would be a condition where you're not comfortable. So a non-physical torture. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Katie. Yeah. I would say a um, distance from God. Distance from God. Okay. But these are all not the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> now we're all thinking deeply. <laughs> but yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is fire torture. As we think about it more deeply, we come to realize obviously probably more spiritual distance from God, unease, anxiety, and things like that. Um, so let's build upon this. Um, the most obvious reason why there would be any type of torture, whether more physical like fire or more spiritual anxiety, distance from God, would be the principle of reward and punishment, right? Why else would you be in hell if not for punishment? Uh, what, what other purpose could there be for it? And so we're going to need to explore first, before we can explore heaven and hell, we need to explore punishment. So if you have the book, you can turn to page 132. I'm also going to share it on the screen. Um, okay, so let, let's, let's explore reward and punishment for a moment, and that will help us appreciate a little bit about um, heaven and hell. It says over here, the 11th of the 13 principles of Jewish faith, this is by Maimonides, he wrote the famous 13 principles of faith. He says, is that God, blessed be he, 
rewards those who observe the commandments of the Torah and punishes those who transgress its prohibitions. So very uh, non-ambiguous, very straight up. You have to believe it's a principle of Jewish faith that God rewards and punishes. God is just. God will make sure righteous righteousness uh, and, and justice prevails. Um, and then he continues, when we say reward and punishment, where is the reward and punishment? Um, so he continues and he says, the greatest reward is the pleasures of the world to come. The strongest punishment is to be cut off from the world to come. So those are, so reward and punishment is non-physical, the ultimate reward and punishment. What he means by that is God's reward and punishment can come both in the physical and the spiritual. Um, Obviously, God being a spiritual being, he can give us punishments in both worlds. Our souls being spiritual, we can have punishment and reward in both worlds. Where is the primary? The primary is after we pass away. Um, why is the primary after we pass away? Well, that is because spiritual pleasures are more intense and also physical uh, uh, and, and spiritual punishment is more intense. When you think about in your life, what is more difficult for you? Uh, the, the, the more spiritual the thing is, the harder it is, right? Anxiety or broken romance or any of those things. Uh, those are the more difficult things to deal with in life than not getting the best uh, sushi or being hungry for a little bit, you know? Um, obviously, if you starve too long, you'll die. But, you know, physical pain is typically not as difficult as the metaphysical, as the spiritual. And, and conversely, the most uh, beautiful pleasures are more spiritual, so to speak, less uh, tangible. I like to point out, think about the favorite meal, the, the, sorry, not the, the best meal you had in your life, the best, best meal you had in your life. Most likely, it's actually not the best food you ever tasted in your life. Probably the best food you ever tasted in life, you have probably forgotten. Probably the best meal you've had was surrounded by other uh, ideas and, and moments that made it the best meal in your life. So for example, for me, the best meal I had in my life was the day after Passover. We drove to Prague. I was in Europe that year. We drove to Prague and we had pizza and I felt that that pizza was out of this world. Now it's probably partially it's the day after Passover, uh, but it was also being in Prague, being with my family until today. I don't want to go back there to find out that the pizza is not that great. You know, I, in my mind, it's the best, best, and pizza, I was just seriously, pizza is going to be the best food, but I don't know, something about it, the aura, the feeling of being there and the wonder. Um, obviously, it's not just the food. I have to imagine that the best food I've ever tasted is something that I've actually forgotten. Um, and so, uh, truthfully, the best reward and the best punishment are non, uh, sorry, not the best punishment, but the, the strongest, more powerful is going to be spiritual. And therefore, when God serves justice, both the reward and the punishment is going to be in the world to come. That being said, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist in this world, but there are some people who will be bad people and will get a lot of good things in this world, but we know ultimately justice will be served. And, and conversely, there are people who suffer in this world who are good people, and we know that ultimately they will get their reward. And it is a uh, tenet of our faith because you have to believe it. If you don't believe that there's reward and punishment in the afterlife, then uh, God is not just because just by judging what goes on in this world, it, it doesn't look like God is so just. You have to believe that there is uh, another, an afterlife where uh, justice is uh, eventually served. Um, all right. So that being said, so now that we have this concept that there is reward and punishment, 
we do have to question for a moment, okay, I understand God will punish murderers. I understand God will uh, reward those who are charitable, right? Those things we can live with, understand, appreciate why these people will get rewarded, these people will get punished. But when it comes to things that are strictly religious, you know, uh, kosher or Shabbat or Ahal or Yom Kippur or any of these things, then we start to think about reward and punishment. And we start to think that maybe God is a little bit petty. Like, why is God so, you know, if you read the Torah, you read the punishments and a lot of different things, you start to think, what happened to this benevolent God, this loving, infinite God? Uh, what is he? he? He walks around all day with a checklist, wondering if we did exactly what he wanted. All these, you know, all these 613 things that he asks of us. Um, and he tells us, if you do it, you'll get rewarded. If you don't do it, you know, you'll be punished. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be damned, you know? Obviously, in Judaism, we don't believe it'll be damned, as we'll get to in a moment, but you'll be punished, right? You'll be punished. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've thought of it and wondering what happened to the benevolent God that suddenly God is keeping score and making sure to settle everything uh, with each and every single one of us. Um, you know, where's that nice, loving God? Uh, especially if you read the Bible and the stories, it sometimes can look a little bit uh, oppressive. So... Um, you know, this tit for tat, it's kind of, it, it, it bothers many people theologically, um, especially, you know, there are a lot of people who, who uh, are into religion and then sometimes they drop their religion because of that. And uh, when they come back uh, learning about God again, it's kind of hard for them to reconcile their, their, their belief in this benevolent God and the religious part of God. It's an interesting uh, thing people deal with. So how do we look at it? And uh, so on a, simple, on a simple level, some people say, well, you know, God has to put reward and punishment there because, uh, you know, otherwise we may not do what we have to do because we just may not listen. It's a simple, 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 obviously simple understanding. But um, let's take it deeper. Let's take it deeper. Um, God is deep. We have to um, understand the depth of uh, reward and punishment. And so here it is. I'm going to share with you a secret. This is from... Uh, Rabbi Menachem Ricanti. He was a famous Kabbalist, um, Italian Kabbalist in the late 1200s. So he says like this, do not consider the punishments described in the Torah as comparable to penalties a person incurs for disobeying the decree of a mortal king. Right? That would be a petty God. Not at all. Rather, they are completely natural consequences for one who fails to observe a Torah commandment is denied the good that naturally results from its observance is comparable to one who fails to sow his field and therefore cannot reap a harvest for one who fails to wear clothes and is then cold. It is as natural a consequence as the warmth provided by fire, the wetness of water, the satiation of bread. In the same way, it is the nature of each mitzvah to provide the positive consequence that are promised for its observance or the negative consequence that are stated regarding its transgression. So what we're saying here is that um, it's not punishment or reward as much as it is consequence of your actions. So um, what that means is, for example, if you go to work and you get paid, getting paid is not a consequence of your actions. Getting paid is an arbitrary decision that the boss decides to give you. And based on where you live, the minimum wage can be different things and they can pay you different amounts. But again, it's ultimately arbitrary. There is no natural connection between your work and the money you get. It was a contract you wrote up a decision they made. Um, however, there are some things that have intrinsic connections. So for example, 
uh, if you eat food, you'll be satiated. If you don't eat food, you will starve. It's not a punishment if you don't eat that you will starve. It's a natural consequence of not eating. Similarly, they bring the example of here, you know, you wear clothing, you'll be warmer. You don't wear clothing, you'll be cold. You, 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 sow, you sow the seeds in the ground, they'll grow. You don't sow any seeds, nothing will grow. Uh, these are natural consequences of what you're doing. They are not reward and punishment. And so what the Rakanti is telling us is that what God gives us is just a outgrowth of our actions. God is not being petty on us. God tells us these are the things that will have these types of consequences. And these are the things that will, that will have um, these types of good outgrowths from it. Uh, they give the example. They say there was once a, a worker in a construction company. He worked there for 40 years, really good worker. And at the end, he tells his boss he wants to retire. And his boss says, okay, but I want you to stand for one more job. So uh, he tells him, I want you to build a house over here on Main Street. So he starts building the house. And he's in a rush because he wants to uh, retire. So he cuts a couple corners. He uses a little less quality wood in the house. And anyways, he finishes the house in record time. When he's done building the house, the boss comes over and says, ah, really? This house that you built, this house is your gift. I wanted to give you one last parting gift before you left the company. And uh, now, of course, you can see that uh, the house that he has is a consequence of his actions. And uh, so similarly, uh, God's system of reward and punishment are actually naturally generated consequences. Now, we as human beings wouldn't know that that's a natural generated consequence, but God created the world in such a way that for uh, Jewish people, these 630 commandments uh, create certain, certain positive or negative auras, create certain positive or negative uh, outgrowths from them. It's not that God says, oh, because you didn't listen to me, therefore I'm gonna give you this. What you get is just a outgrowth of what you've done. It's not uh, separate things that he's coming after you afterwards. He's not saying, oh, well, you sinned, I'm gonna give you lashes. You sinned, I'm gonna throw you in a fire. And that's, and that's why uh, hell is not just a fire. Remember I said earlier, hell could be a lot of different things. There's a lot of different descript descriptions because fire is one form of punishment. And that you would only, you, if, if in truth, constant, the, the, the punishments were arbitrary, then you would only need one form of punishment. You need a fire. And if you're worse, you get it hotter. If you're you know, not so bad, you get it colder. But since they're actually an outgrowth of our actions. There's all different types uh, of hell based on our deeds, uh, which as we'll explain later, the purpose of hell more in depth again, but just the general idea that both the hell and the paradise are actually an outgrowth of our actions. So um, this actually explains a fascinating um, section in the Pirkei about ethics of our fathers. It says, Schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of a, of a mitzvah is a mitzvah, and the retribution for a sin is a sin. Now, what people used to think that means, or what most people think it means, is if you do a mitzvah, you'll be given an opportunity to do another mitzvah. But what, on a deeper level, what it means is that the reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself, and the retribution for a sin is the sin itself. The sin itself is the issue. The mitzvah itself is the good deed. Um, it's like when we say, uh, thou shalt not murder, right? Right. The Torah says thou shalt not murder. Let's say someone lives in a country where murder is not forbidden, but the moment somebody murders in that country, they create a more dangerous country for themselves. Because once you start murdering, then people can murder you. You know, uh, once you start not respecting other people's property, people don't respect your property. Uh, once you start stealing, it's not just an arbitrary punishment. That's an outgrowth of your actions. 
Um, now I want to point out, this doesn't mean, um, let's say someone keeps all the commandments that, uh, uh, just one second, but that doesn't mean someone who keeps all the commandments uh, will have no suffering at all. And someone who does all, uh, so someone who doesn't keep the commandments will have a horrible life. Let's give an example of health, right? Um, if you want to live a healthy life, you, you have to, you know, go for, you have to do exercise, you have to eat healthy, you have to brush your teeth, all those things. Uh, it's not a reward for doing those things. You get a healthy life. It's, it's a con natural consequence and outgrowth of what you've done. However, there are still no guarantees. Even if you live a healthy life, there are external factors that can affect your health. Many, many different things that could come up that can affect your health. But living a healthy life will set you up for the best possible outcome. Similarly, uh, God has many, many calculations. And there could be reasons why even if we live a very good life, very honorable life, that we could still have suffering in our lives. Uh, that's still a possibility because there are many, many other things. However, living a honorable life, living a life in accordance with God's will, will set us up for a better possible, possible outcome. And so if you want to set yourself up for the best possible outcome of having a, a better life, keeping the Torah and the mitzvot, following God's commandments, living an honorable life is the best way to do that. Again, there's no guarantees because God has a view, uh, general view and we might get into next week about reincarnation too and many, many different things. Um, however, living an honorable life uh, will set you up just as healthy living, will set you up for the most healthy life. Living a good life in accordance with God's will will set you up for the best possible outcome. Um, uh, someone asked here, um, first question they said, it's, uh, it says the reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. Um, that's because of the English translation. Um, and the Hebrew says, mitzvah, mitzvah. It just says the reward of a mitzvah, mitzvah. So what does it mean? Uh, you, can, you can read it in both ways. Uh, someone else asked, uh, did people in biblical days receive their hell there and then whilst we wait for our hours? Uh, there and then, you mean on the earth? I'm not sure. But um, no, hell, everybody gets... Uh, uh, we'll get to later. Uh, hell is, is for everybody afterlife. Uh, you can suffer during your lifetime, and that can take away from some of the suffering after your life, too. So someone who suffers during their lifetime, obviously, that will take away. Um, were people instantly punished during, the during biblical times? Oh, uh, well, during biblical times, there was more uh, instant punishment, was more, uh, but it wasn't always instant. Uh, there was also court of law that, that would uh, punish you for some of your things. So... Uh, but either way, uh, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into, into that. Um, so a good example also of this is um, that an outgrowth, it's more of an outgrowth of your actions. It's like if you do something honorable in your life, the actual act of what you did is greater than any thank you or reward that you're going to get. So if you save someone's life, right? saving the person's life that itself that aura and that feeling of saving the person's life is greater than if the the family then decides to give you a hundred thousand dollars you know because you saved the life um okay so before i move on to the next thing let me just uh just recap what we said so far uh so we discussed that we were born twice once in the womb, once from the tomb and just as when we're in the womb we cannot uh, really imagine what life is in the world. Similarly, we, we cannot imagine what life is after we pass away. Um, 
what we discussed, reward and punishment comes in both physical and spiritual forms, but the spiritual reward and punishment is the primary and spiritual reward is infinitely more enjoyable. We discussed that there are some types of rewards that are arbitrary, like work equals money, uh, but food uh, is like a consequence. So if you sow, you reap, if you eat food, you're not hungry. Those are all things that are consequences, not just arbitrary. And um, we discuss how the afterlife is the world that we create with our actions. Um, okay, I'm gonna skip that video. Okay, uh, that video, um, you know, let's, let's share the next text. All right, so here, uh, Remember how I said earlier, hell is not a physical description. Here we'll have a more spiritual description of the fires of hell based on our new understanding. So here it says in text number four, this is from Rabbi Huda Arye Leib Alter, this Fat Emet. He says, the fires of Gehenna hell are stoked in direct proportion to the degree to which the wicked found their fiery passions. Accordingly, we must say that Ghanaid in paradise is amplified by the tremendous passion that the righteous invest in their Torah study and in their performance of God's commandments. They take great pleasure and delight in God himself, and their deeds generate a corresponding abundance of life in the Gan Eden. So the afterlife is not a existing world that we enter after we die, but the afterlife is actually, is actually a world that we create and we experience after we die. So again, the afterlife is not a place that is there that we enter but it's actually a place that we create uh, and we get to enter it when we get there. And this, by the way, is a powerfully um, inspirational point. What's the inspirational point about it? This tells us how powerful our actions and deeds are. In other words, if God's reward and punishment for, our, for the mitzvot, for the commandments were arbitrary, that would mean the deeds themselves have no it have no value except that God wants it, right? It would have no value except to the fact that God said, you do this and I'll reward you. Don't do this and I'll punish you. It's like, it would be like a, possibly you could say a cruel parent who just wants to control their child and tell them what they should do and what they shouldn't do and reward them and punish them accordingly. No, the deeds that God has given us to do have intrinsic value to the point that when you do those good deeds, they create the paradise. They create a good aura to themselves. And so this is a, uh, a powerful a lesson. Some people think, you know, we're just put in this world, you know, to face temptation or just to, uh, just to see how good what we can do listening to God. While those may be true ideas, but it's much more than that. Uh, the good deeds that God asks of us are because they are intrinsically good deeds. And so that should be inspirational to us is that we're not just doing them to, to avoid punishment or to get the reward. But more than that is that the deed itself is a beautiful act and a beautiful deed. Sometimes we don't appreciate the beauty of that deed. We don't understand everything that God asks of us, but we should know and understand based upon what we said here today is that the, that the, that the deeds that we do have intrinsic value, uh, not arbitrary value. They have intrinsic value to themselves. Um, Okay, that being said, I still have not really delved deep into hell uh, because one still can think from here that hell is a place you hang out for a long time and uh, you created this horrible world for yourself and you might have to live in it forevermore. So obviously um, I'll explain in a moment that that's not true. Um, but first I wanna open up anybody's any questions before I move on to the next part. Yes. 
Um, I have a couple questions. Um, uh, you have a couple. I'll give you thirty seconds. I'll give you. Okay. Um, I'll I'll ask the one that was closest. Okay. So when you're saying that we create by our actions, whatever our heaven or our hell is, yeah. does that mean that everybody's creating something different and they're alone in that place, or are there other you know? You know, because a lot of people like to think, oh, when they go to heaven or whatever, they see their family, they see their loved ones. But if everybody's creating something different. All right. They... So 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 for the hell part, the hell part, we're going to explain in a moment. Hopefully, when you get to hell, none of your loved ones are there. Right. Right. right uh, obviously. For the heaven part. Um, yes, to an extent, you may be creating your own heaven, uh, which, as we'll explain, you could see your loved ones and not see your loved ones at the same time, as we'll explain when we get there. Okay. okay so we'll have to develop the class further to, to answer your question. Cause I haven't really explained heaven and hell. I've just explained the concept that there are consequences or actions. I haven't really delved into it. So there is more I have to say about it. Okay. And, oh, one other question. Um, and so when you were talking about the mitzvah, the reward is the mitzvah and the, you know, the sin is the sin. Is that kind of um, analogous to the concept? What goes around comes around. You know, because at, at you know you're you're putting you're getting, or I guess that would be well, more the consequence. Goes, what goes around comes around, I guess. I mean, it's kind of a saying people say to make themselves feel better. Right, but I mean, Arma. basically the idea that you're attracting whatever you're really putting out there, and I guess yeah. that would be more in alignment with you reap what you sow, like your, you your, your, your punishment or reward is a consequence of whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. The only reason, you know, the only thing I have against what goes around comes around is, is what goes around comes around is assuming it's going to happen here on this earth. And it's not necessarily always going to be that case. That's why I, I, I do, I do always hope what goes around comes around, but it's not always going to be that case. Sometimes those no, things wait for the world. No. And that's what I'm talking about in the world yeah. to come. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind right. of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's, let's move on. So um, talking about what goes around, comes around, they say that uh, a couple of healthcare workers passed away, they get to heaven and they get to the angel that's admitting them. And so the person says, I was a pediatrician and I helped people and their patients. And uh, so the angel says, oh, you can come in. The next one says, I was a psychiatrist and help people to rehabilitate them with their mental issues. And the, the, the angel said, you can come in. And the third one says, I was an HMO manager and I help people get health insurance, very affordable. And so the angel says, okay, you two can come in. And then he whispers into the person's ear, but you can only have a three-day stay. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, you create your own paradise, right? So, um, <laughs> so let's get into hell. Uh, we, dis we discussed that we created our hell, but what is actually hell? Uh, hell, you should just know in, in Hebrew is called Gehenom. Gehenom, hell. Uh, Gehenna, it comes from the book of Jeremiah. That's where the name of it comes from. Now, hell is generally thought as a punishment for bad behavior. And again, you may still think that based on what I said, but actually in Judaism, hell is not a mental punishment or just suffering in the consequences of your uh, actions, but actually hell is um a rehabilitation of the soul. That's what hell is. Hell is a rehabilitation of the soul. Um, so why would a soul require rehabilitation? Uh, because every single action we do has an effect in our lives. Um, charitable person becomes a more kind person. Um, someone who is uh, constantly stealing becomes someone who 
as little respect for others. Uh, our actions, we know physically have an effect on our personality. Over time, they can have an effect on our personality. And similarly, the souls that are enclosed within our bodies are affected by our actions while we're on this earth. Our souls are tainted. Our souls are covered over, hidden, uh, get to feel disconnected from God. Uh, what is paradise? Paradise is actually a place where you experience the spiritual connection to God. As we'll get to later in the class, there's nothing greater than an intimate relationship and for sure an intimate relationship with God. And however, a soul that comes to heaven tainted by its bad deeds throughout its lifetime cannot yet fully appreciate its paradise because it's been brought down by all the negative actions that you've done throughout your life. And it's not ready to experience the spiritual delights. Uh, it's like someone who's been eating ketchup on their hot dog for so long will probably not appreciate, well, I shouldn't say ketchup on a hot dog because hot dogs have no flavor, but someone who eats uh, pizza with ketchup, okay? Uh, they'll, they'll never appreciate a good pizza because it needs to be dumbed down with this really strong flavor of ketchup, right? Uh, to have a refined taste is not something that takes a moment, right? You have to usually acquire and develop it, learn to appreciate fine foods. And a, and a you know, or people who are very into only pop music, they can't appreciate any other music. They just need lots of loud noises and high pitches, but there's a, a greater, deeper a beauty to music more than just pop, you know? There's, uh, pop is popular, right? It's, it's the most simplest, easiest to appreciate, but there's more refined classical music or other types of music that, um, or, you know, kids today, kids today don't appreciate books. Everything has to be on a screen, right? Uh, they, they miss the, the beauty of actually reading a book where you can actually imagine using your imagination. It's much greater than watching a movie, of course, but watching a movie is easier. And so the point is that sometimes just as a person might need a rehabilitation to be able to appreciate um, more uh, deeper physical pleasures, surely that works in the spiritual realm. And so if we lived our life in a certain way, our soul is not sensitized enough to appreciate the paradise and the spiritual pleasures of God. And therefore, we need to go to hell. And so in a sense, we actually all hope and pray, uh, if we're not perfect, that we actually go to hell. Okay? We're actually going to hope and pray we go to hell. And uh, as, as bad as that sounds, I'm going to share with you a story over here from the Talmud. So here's a fascinating story of the Talmud where someone actually prayed and wished for their teacher to go to hell. So here is the story in the Talmud. It says, Elisha ben Avuya, he was a, uh, a famous uh, Torah sage that went bad, uh, who turned such public heresy and treachery. He was derogatively named Acher, something else. So when Acher died, the heavenly court declared, we will not afflict him with judgment in Gehenim, nor will we permit him to enter paradise. So they said, uh, he can't get hell. He's, he's not good enough and he can't go to paradise either. Their reasoning, we will not afflict him with the judgment because he studied much Torah but we will not permit him to enter paradise because he sinned egregiously. Acher's former disciple mayor said better that he indeed be judged and punished so that he may enter paradise. So what he was saying was like this. Heaven said, this guy is bad news. We can't, uh, we can't give him uh, hell. Uh, he's not worthy for it. And we can't give him paradise. He's not worthy for that either. So instead he was stuck in a limbo state. Uh, anybody here ever heard of a Dibuk? A Dibuk? Yeah, Dibuk's. Yeah, there's a movie out there called Dibuk. It's, it, this is, there's a lot of fake stories out there about Dibuk. Dibuk are basically when souls possess other people. Um, in Judaism, there is such a concept. It usually happens with one of these souls, a soul that's in limbo. 
a soul that has trouble, that cannot move on its process, that cannot enter hell to get to heaven, it's in limbo and sometimes it can possess other people and they didn't need to do exorcism. Again, they don't, they don't happen so often and there are old stories and there's a lot of fakers out there and I think there was a movie made in Israel about it. Uh, but I'm just throwing out that concept. That's not the main purpose of our class about the books. Uh, the main purpose of our class here is that entering hell is a great place. Um, to the point where, and this is the rest of the story, it doesn't say it here, Rabbi Meir, when he passed away, he said, it's better that Acher be judged so that he may enter paradise. And he said, when I die, I'm going to make sure that Acher goes to hell. So it says, when Rabbi Meir died, Acher's grave started smoking. There was smoke coming out of his grave. And there was smoke, smoke coming out of his grave for 150 years. Until many years later, another rabbi called Rabbi Yochanan said, ah, it's not a trick to put someone in hell. It's a bigger trick to bring someone into paradise. And so he says, when I die, I'll make sure he enters paradise. And indeed, when Rabbi Yochanan died, the grave stopped smoking. Now, I just want to point out, obviously, hell doesn't have physical smoke. So why was the grave smoking? It was just a symbol to us here on the earth that he indeed entered hell. But what we see from here is that going to hell is a great place um, because remaining in limbo means you cannot move on to paradise. I also want to point out another thing from that story. Although we said Acher was in hell for 150 years, uh, most people will not get that, as we'll discuss later in the class. Uh, that's rare, rare exception. Typically, it's not more than 12 months. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that soon. Uh, we don't believe in Judaism and utter damnation. Uh, there are a few exceptions of people who uh, will be in hell for a long time or will not even be admitted into hell. Those are really, really bad people. Uh, but typically, for the rest of us, uh, hell is, is, is just a, a short, much shorter period of time. So let's read over here. This is from the Alter Rebbe. He says, the purpose of Gehenna of hell is to refine the soul and rid it of any sickness that it contracted. This is similar to the process of smelting silver, wherein the dross sediment is burned away in a furnace, leaving the silver clean and free of impurities. Similarly, for the soul to be able to experience the light of supernal pleasures and bask in God's radiance, it must first be refined in the spiritual fire of Gehenna, whereby the negative is purged from the positive. So what is hell? It's a rehabilitation. What's the rehabilitation? It's a painful process, but through that painful process, the uh, soul is cleansed from all its issues and it can move on to experience paradise. Someone here asked, what about exceedingly wicked people, leaders of genocide? I think I just discussed that a moment ago, but yes, the Talmud does discuss uh, uh, certain people who are so bad that they are pretty much punished forevermore. Uh, people like Titus, he was the one who destroyed the second temple and uh, murdered you know, hundreds of thousands of Jews. I would obviously like to believe that uh, uh, terrible people like uh, Hitler or Stalin or things like that are, uh, uh, I don't think they're ever being admitted to paradise. And uh, I'm gonna assume that what the Talmud says about certain really horrible people will be applying to them forevermore. Um, Before I take another question, let me just um, read to you here just one possible description of what hell could look like. Because again, we described hell as not physical. Hell is a consequence of reactions and a rehabilitation. And here's a beautiful description by Rabbi Arya Kaplan that describes one way that it can work. Uh, we have many descriptions of it, but here's one way. And again, it's non-physical, but here's one way how hell is both a outgrowth of our actions and also rehabilitation. Both ideas that we've discussed today. So he says over here, then meaning in the hell, an individual will see himself in a new light. 
even in our mortal physical state, looking at oneself can sometimes be pleasing and at other times be very painful. Imagine standing naked before God with your memory wide open, completely transparent without any jamming mechanism or reducing valve to diminish its force. You will remember everything you did. You will see it in the light of the unshaded spirit, or if you will, in God's own light that shines from one end of the creation to the other. The memory of every good deed and mitzvah will be the sublimest of pleasures, but your memory will also be open to all the things of which you are ashamed. They cannot be rationalized away or dismissed. You will be facing yourself, fully aware of the consequences of all your deeds. We all know the terrible shame and humiliation experienced when one is caught in the act of doing something wrong. Imagine being caught by one's own memory with no place to escape. A number of our great teachers write that the fire of Gehenna, hell, is actually the burning shame of one experiences because of one's sins. Of course, these concepts are used by our sages, may also contain deeper mysteries and meanings, but a major ingredient to this fire may be shame. Uh, how else could one characterize the agony of an unconcealed shame upon a soul? We are taught the judgment of the wicked lasts 12 months, the pain eventually subsides. And so if you, we want to put this in, uh, let's say, in relationships, um, if someone uh, was very self-centered, uh, uh, was the cause of a harmful relationship, and the harm that they caused to their loved ones, to their children, to their spouse, or whoever it was, um, as long as they're not willing to experience uh, and face up to their issues and live with it and really feel the pain of what they caused, uh, it's never going to be healed. And it's never going to be rectified. They have to experience that pain. They have to experience that shame and the, and the consequence of their actions in order to move on, in order for that relationship to uh, be healed. And so similarly, uh, although in this world we appreciate how our mitzvahs connect us with God and maybe our sins disconnect us, but we don't fully appreciate it. But in heaven, which is called the world of truth, there the truth is there and we cannot just watch a movie to escape our feelings of pain. We cannot just read a book. We cannot just uh, explain to ourselves a way why we're not at fault like we do here so often when we're at fault, right? It's always when someone else sins, we have no explanations why they sinned, right? When someone else does something wrong, we have all the reasons worldwide they're wrong. When we do something wrong, we have all the reasons why I know it was wrong, but X, Y, and Z, I'm not so bad, right? We always have explanations. When you come to heaven, all the, all the excuses fall away. And so that's one way. It's a very painful process where the soul both feels the truth and feels the full enormity of their actions. And just imagine being there and, and, and the truth is shining all around you and you have that burning shame of what you've done. And uh, we all know, right? Many of the things we do, we would, you know, if, if even one person would see us doing, we wouldn't want to do it. How much more so uh, in the world of truth uh, where God is there and maybe our loved ones and whatnot. Um, and so that is in one description of uh, the burning pain of hell in a much more, uh, what someone described, you know, anxiety or much more psychological manner, which can be much more painful, uh, but it can also be a healing process uh, at the same time. So that is just one explanation. Again, we're not going to delve farther into what hell could look like, but the general idea is hell is an outgrowth of our actions. And it's also a rehabilitation place. It's a place where, we, where the soul gets rehabilitated and eventually after suffering through that pain and hell, which doesn't take so long, um, 
although it's much more, although it's only 12 months, but don't forget, uh, it says that one hour of the one hour of hell can be much more difficult than 70 years of Job. Job had 70 years of, of torture. If you read the book of Job, uh, he, he lost his family, he lost his money, he lost his health. He had a very difficult life, uh, but the pain is incomparable to the pain of uh, hell. So even though the pain of hell is, is short, okay, we don't believe in Judaism and utter damnation, but at the same time, it can be very painful. Um, and that's because the soul has to be able to move on. And so although it's very painful for the soul at the same time, it's very liberating uh, because the soul knows that this is a process through which it can eventually appreciate uh, the, bene the, the, the outgrowth of its good deeds that it created. So here on this earth, we are creating both a hell and a heaven at the same time. Uh, but our heaven is, is enduring and our hell is not. And that's a big difference in Judaism. And so we don't believe in utter damnation. We don't tell people you should do the right thing because to escape utter damnation, just the opposite. You do good things because then you're creating your paradise. You will, of course, have to uh, suffer through some of your rehabilitation process to experience your paradise. But let's make the focus on the positive. Hell is a very short period of time, comparatively. Um, so let's focus on the positive. Try and do good deeds uh, to create your paradise, to create um, the wonderful place in which you can experience uh, in the afterlife and, and really live uh, and appreciate all the good things that you did. Um, all right, so that being said, let's see over here, anything from here. So again, Gehenna hell is not an eternal damnation. Gehenna is a soul rehabilitation and the soul experiences the negative effects of its actions. This painful process cleanses the soul and then the soul is able to experience uh, paradise. And so before I go further, uh, it, delving a little bit more into the sentences of how long you end up in hell for, uh, any questions? Okay, just make it, make it a quick question. Okay, so going on that theory, um, that, so does, would everybody probably go to hell except like a real Sadiq? I mean, if you, if you go and, because not everybody keeps 613 commandments, you know, and so, and the other thing, what a question I had is, to me, it seems kind of like that whole process is almost like going to the mikvah. I, I mean, no, the mikvah is a good thing, but what I'm uh, saying, okay. the purification aspect, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, so, the idea. So, yes. so to answer, to answer your question, uh, uh, most people will go to hell, yeah. For some period of time first uh, stop yeah you can't you, it's not like if you have uh, a thousand good deeds and two misdeeds unless you did a full-on repentance for it uh you'll spend some time cleaning it up but uh, the length of time will obviously depend on how you lived your life and and, and conversely really the big the big difference is going to be uh the, the your paradise which is an experience of your good deeds will also depend on what you've done on this earth so, uh, and again, I, I don't have the uh, ability to judge uh, deeds, you know, for what one person's deed may be worth a lot more than another person's deed, even if it's the same deed. God is what's called the ultimate judge. He knows how to judge people. So I'm not going to say, oh, look, I'm a religious person. So I do more official mitzvot than you. Therefore, I'm going to get a better paradise. It doesn't necessarily work like that. God knows how to weigh not just your deeds, but also you as a personality, how you grew up, what area you grew in, and all those things. That's why God is called Dayan Hamet, the true judge. 
judges in this earth can only judge by you know the facts they they cannot you cannot factor that in when you know a judge can't say well uh you had a difficult uh, up, uh you know a difficult childhood so we're going to give you less sentence you can't do that in a court of law on this earth uh but god in the ultimate world of truth he can and does do that and that's why i, ne I never judge and say i'm a better person than someone else i'm going to get a better paradise than someone else i have no idea i don't know it's not it's not my job it's not my place so somebody for example like let's say that appeared to keep all the mitzvahs but they were not kind to their family or 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 mean to people i mean that 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 yeah. in itself Again, it's possible they they won't get a great paradise it's possible they will i have i don't know right i don't judge but i don't i don't i don't judge people strictly based on how officially religious they are you know right um that's 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 the point so very 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 wicked people like stalin or whatever is the idea that they they stay in hell or they don't even get to go to hell because they don't sure. get to I'm go not sure. i'm not sure exactly but i'm sure they're not they stay in that that's i mean do they stay in that purgatory for lack of a better word i don't know i honestly don't know i just know there's different stories in the talmud how exactly god dealt with them he hasn't told me yet but when he calls me and lets me know I, I'm, I'm, I'm as an example, you know, yeah. whatever. So, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're not in paradise. Where exactly and how exactly they are, I gave you ideas. Again, I, we're not there and I couldn't tell you for sure. I, we can extrapolate from these ideas what might be happening to them, but we don't know for sure. Okay, uh, someone else. Yes, um, Linda. Sorry, I muted you while you were unmuting yourself. <laughs> you have to unmute again. Okay, I have a couple of questions. One is, is that is that the age of three there's a certain age where you're aware that you're doing something that's not good for other people i'm guessing i mean when you're little and you hit your little sibling ah uh, yeah so you're asking do you get punished for your for your sins when you're little or, uh, or if you're unaware or if you're unaware of something that you're that you know is a good or a bad thing and sometimes some things we do could be good or bad Right. So first of all, being bar and bat mitzvah, that's part of the idea. You only become responsible for your actions once you turn bar and bat mitzvah. Um, actually, the prayer that the parent says when the when the when the when the son gets the first aliyah, the blessing you say is, "Blessed is he who has um, exempt me from the punishments of this child." What that means is, is that to to an extent, parents are responsible for their children's actions when they're young, if they're not correcting them. But it's not on the children. Um, and on top of that, we are told that children will not get punished for their own misdeeds until they turn 20. So even though they're responsible for the actions from 12, 13, uh, they will not get punished for their own misdeeds until they turn 20. Um, and they, so to speak, become their own unit. They're not part of a family unit anymore. And then what if children, like children die very young? Some children, some people die young. So children die young, yes. Um, there are some places which say, and I don't want to say this is always the case, Again, these are ideas that that apply in some cases. Um, to an extent, um, it's some. It can be a punishment for for things the parents did, but it's not necessarily. Um, and don't forget, once you throw in reincarnation, everything we know about reward and punishment can be all upside down. It could be previous lifetimes and everything. Or um, you know, there's a there's a famous story, the Baal Shem Tov, where he blessed a family to have a child, and then the child died at age three, and the Baal Shem Tov gave them a lengthy story how basically this child was ready for paradise, but it needed another three years on this earth to be raised by a Jewish mother. And then it could continue its paradise. And the Baal Shem Tov basically told him, you know, you were lucky enough to raise this special soul for three years. So there's, that's why I say there's many, many different 
concepts of why these things happen, we, I can never tell someone, this is why this happened to your child, uh, right. that we just have different concepts. And one more, like in one of the sessions, maybe it was the last time we we're talking about your mission in life. And um, if you fulfill, I was under the understanding, like when you die, you're fulfilled your mission in life. And then how does that relate to like, if, if you fulfill a mission in life, why do you have all these uh, things that are not completed that you have to still atone for? So uh, that that will that I'll I'll wait for reincarnation. Reincarnation okay. has a lot to do with not. That's next week if you didn't finish your mission. Okay. Yeah. But it's but also I mean, but also it is possible even if you completed your mission, you still need to go to hell to rehabilitate your soul. So let's say you completed your mission, but also while completing your mission, you did a couple of wrong things along the way. You need to clean that up so you can experience. Um, Diane asked, um, "Could souls inhabit another?" Um, there is a discussion in reincarnation that next week. I'm not sure that's what you're talking about. You want to know if, if souls can choose to inhabit another person? Again, maybe I'll, I'll defer to next week. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the the books. okay. Yeah. All right. Reincarnation is an interesting thing. Okay. Um, all right, so this being said, so um, what, based on everything that I said, we will now understand two important uh, teachings. Um, so let me share that over here on the screen. The first one is text number eight. Uh, this is something we said a moment ago. That is the maximum sentence of the wicked in Gehenna is 12 months. That's from the Mishnah. That's on one side. And the flip side is, as it says here elsewhere in the Mishnah, each member of the Jewish people has a portion of the world to come. As it is stated, your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. They are the branch of my planting, the work of my hands in which I take pride. That means we will all have a portion of the world to come. Uh, and in other words, there is no utter damnation. Um, and uh, if someone sins, then they have hell to deal with for a certain amount of time. Or as we'll get to next week, sometimes you may have to do reincarnation before you get to hell or whatnot. But Ultimately, each and every single one of us uh, will get the paradise. It's not something that's, and, and think about it this way. There's no, very few purely wicked people on this earth, okay? Some people are despots, and even if they've done good deeds, they probably don't reserve a benefit. They probably don't deserve a benefit for that. But uh, most of us, even really bad people that you know, have some good sides to them. And so they will be rewarded for the good that they've done in their life. That's one of the things on Rosh Hashanah. We eat a pomegranate. Why do we eat a pomegranate? We say, just as a pomegranate is full of seeds, every single person is full of good deeds. Even Esau, right? The famous Esau, Esau, uh, the, son of, uh, uh, the son of Isaac. He was, he was renowned for his uh, honoring his parents. And so even the very wicked people have some benefits and good things that they do. And so every single person will have the ability to live that paradise of the good things that they did. And the bad that they did, that will have to be cleaned up. And if you're a really bad person, it might take a little bit longer. And uh, with that, we'll close the chapter on hell and we're ready to move on to heaven. So that is kind of the idea of hell. Again, it's, it's not so long. 12 months is the longest, um, but actually we say most people will not get more than 11 months. That's why the Kaddish is only for 11 months. Kaddish is only for 11 months because uh, we don't expect that our loved ones are, are super wicked. This also explains another custom. A lot of people don't visit the gravesite for the first 12 months uh, because we say the soul is busy in the first 12 months. Um, the other thing to note about here is that although we have this sentence 12 months, 
but um, it could be a lot less than that, five months, four months, a couple of weeks, whatever it is. And also uh, suffering on our, in this world and also sincere teshuva, sincere repentance can also offset some of the uh, uh, unpleasant experiences of hell and it may make it shorter too. Okay. So now let's get into paradise. What is paradise? What does it look like? We, we've discussed how it is an outgrowth of our actions. Um, so let's now explain a little bit more about uh, paradise, spiritual reward. So spiritual reward is obtrusive and difficult for mortal intellect to visualize and grasp as long as the intellect remains attached to the corporeal body, just as one who is blind cannot grasp the concept of color. So the spirit that is engaged with corporeality cannot grasp purely spiritual matters. So here's a great example of this. Here is a depiction in the Haggadah of Elijah coming to visit her homes on the night of the Passover Seder. It depicts Elijah with this very uh, purely physical body. He's half transparent. That's obviously a physical description of Elijah coming because that's something that we can relate to. So you make him half invisible, you know, but uh, truthfully, it's probably something very much different than that. Elijah coming to visit her home uh, is probably more spiritual than that. But uh, we have to make a depiction so that we can kind of relate it. But, you know, just as someone who's colorblind, they can agree that colors exist, but they can never really truly grasp the essence of color. Um, so too, we can give parables and explanations for um, uh, Gan Eden paradise, but really the Gan Eden as it's also called, but we cannot fully grasp it. Here is uh, one description given of Gan Eden. It says in the hereafter, there is no eating, drinking, procreation, commerce, jealousy, hatred, or competition. Rather the righteous sit with their heads adorned with crowns. They delight in the radiance of divine presence. So here you see, that um, any pleasure they experience is not the pleasure that we experience here, right? Uh, they're not enjoying eating or drinking any of those other things. Rather, they sit and um, they delight in the divine presence. Um, and so think about it. A, a close relationship is one of the most powerful feelings we can have in our lives. And really, that is what a mitzvah does. A mitzvah makes a bond and an intimate relationship with God. Actually, the word mitzvah means, comes from the word safta, which means connection. Uh, and so every mitzvah we do bonds us and connects us with God. And, but that bond is not something we can feel here on this earth. We cannot fully feel that connection while on this earth because we are stuck in our bodies and our bodies are limited to feeling that spirituality. Paradise is the experience of that relationship with God. And that is the greatest possible pleasure for the soul. Just as we crave human relationships, the soul craves a unrestricted relationship with God. And uh, as you can imagine, when it's spiritual, it can be an infinite uh, uh, type of relationship, an indescribable pleasure in a way that we cannot think of. So if you think heaven is full of lots of Danishes, uh, definitely not. Uh, is heaven full of, all right, some other religions, full of 70, whatever, you know, it's not that. that, that's a physical description. Heaven cannot, you cannot give a physical pleasure description to heaven because heaven is non-physical. In fact, if you get to heaven and it's physical, you'll be gypped. Uh, heaven is not just more of what we have here. Heaven is not a place with a lot of grass and a good putting green and you can go golfing. Heaven is a, a, a pleasure on a totally different level, which you will appreciate it when you get there. Uh, but, um, and it is an outgrowth of our, react, of our actions, 
of what we do here on this earth. Uh, here they just throw in one thing in this class, just about this idea that uh, um, just generally studies have shown, 22 studies have shown, most studies have shown that spiritual and religious beliefs on bereavement have a positive effect on how people deal with it. Something interesting they threw in here. Okay, so um, in short, um, that is the idea of the Garden of Eden, just as hell is a rehabilitation for the soul. Uh, the Garden of Eden, heaven is an experience in which the soul gets to feel a closeness to God. And that experience is something that also grows over time. It doesn't remain static. Just as the soul through the rehabilitation can get into the first rung and first level of experiencing God, it can also go higher and higher, just as we in a certain physical pleasures, although there's a limit in physical pleasures, right? Physical pleasures have a limit. So you can, you know, keep going up and up and get more and more and more, but eventually there's a ceiling, right? If God is eternal and God is infinite, then you can keep going up and you never reach the top. So the soul's pleasure in experiencing God can keep going higher and higher uh, to no end. Um, it'll keep getting greater and greater. There is no ceiling because God is infinite. And that will tie into now our actions and what we can do for our loved ones. Um, we explained in a previous class that um, we have the ability to connect with our loved ones in a special way once they passed away. Although our loved ones, when they were on this earth, we related to them in a very physical way, also hopefully in a spiritual way, but also a physical way. Uh, now that they passed away, we have to try and relate to them where they are on a spiritual manner. And we discussed doing deeds for them or saying Kaddish for them. So now we're going to take it a little bit deeper. Why is it so important to do good deeds for your loved one? Why is that helpful for your loved one? What do they, what do they care? They're in heaven. They're experiencing paradise already. What does doing a good deed in their merit, what does it help them? They're already in paradise. And the answer is, is that while the soul in heaven has a progressive climb and keeps going up, it is kind of an autopilot, okay? So based on your deeds, uh, you will get a certain type of plane that goes on autopilot and, and will head up a certain direction based on your good deeds. Again, you created your paradise. You asked earlier, uh, does everybody have their own paradise? To an extent, yes, uh, because your paradise is based on your good deeds. We do have descriptions, obviously, of, of the souls intermingling at different times, but to an extent, your pleasure is based on your actions or your good deeds. Um, so although paradise is not a passive world, it's not active either. Um, there is a limit. You kind of go up on a certain um, uh, path. However, how can you uh, jumpstart your autopilot? How can you get even higher than where you're slated to go? Uh, you cannot do any more good deeds because good deeds are only on this earth. But if people who love you, your loved ones in this earth, do good deeds in your merit, then it adds to you to the deceased good deeds. In other words, we create our paradise by our good deeds, right? But when someone passed away, their children can add to their paradise by doing good deeds in their merit. So let's read over here this text. Um, and it'll explain why. When an individual, when individuals act righteously and are outstanding in the service of their creator, they generate tremendous merit for the souls of their parents. This merit is simply by virtue of their parents having served as instruments of their birth. 
It is the parents who enable their soul to be born into this world, which in turn enable the many righteous deeds that they perform. The parents therefore have a share in their meritorious acts. However, anyone's charity or prayers on behalf of a departed person are beneficial for the soul of the deceased. It is therefore Jewish custom to give charity and do other good deeds on behalf of the deceased in order to cause satisfaction to the soul. So what we seem to be saying here is that if your children, will, their good deeds will always elevate their, the, the souls of their parents. Why? Because who you are is in a large part due to your parents. And therefore, even without thinking consciously about your parents just being a good person and doing more good deeds on this earth, elevates your parents' soul to a place where they can't go. And on top of that, for sure, if you do something specifically in their merit, so you weren't going to do something now, you're going to do it in their merit, or uh, someone who's not even related is going to do something in their merit, that also has the ability to uplift that person's soul. And so now we can appreciate even more how important it is to do good deeds in the merit of our parents and our loved ones. Why? When we think about and understand now that the souls in heaven are limited to their paradise, limited to what they created in this earth, but we have the ability to add on to their paradise by doing something in their merit. And so truthfully doing good deeds for our parents and for our loved ones is actually much more powerful than we thought before. It's not just they look down at us, oh, look, my child's such a nice person. And of course they appreciate that, but it's even more than that. It's, it's also helping them and elevating them and elevating their souls. That's why we always use the word aliyat neshama. May the neshama have an aliyah. May the soul have an elevation. And what that means is we, we want to elevate the person's soul. And uh, there are special times when we can elevate a person's soul. Uh, that is, for example, during the first 12 months or on a yard site, the day of the passing, because the day of the passing is a day when all that person's good deeds shine. Also, yizkar is a great time to elevate a person's soul. But the general idea here is that our good deeds can elevate a person's soul. And so here are a couple of ideas. Uh, donating charity, a Yisker service, studying Torah, financial support, for sponsor a Torah class, donate Torah books, write a Torah scroll, uh, but really any good deed. And here are customs that are specific to a yard site, lighting a 24-hour candle, reciting the Kaddish, which we're going to explain in a moment, why is Kaddish important, visiting the grave, reciting chapters, donating to charity, studying Torah, especially Mishnah, receiving a, a, a aliyah to the Torah or having a blessing being said by the Torah, sponsoring a kiddush for your congregation and, and people gather together and talk about the person, convene a gathering of relatives and friends to commemorate and discuss the deceased and learn from the deceased good deeds. So what we have from here is actually something very powerful. So this means on a yard site, on a day of the passing, uh, although we do gather and we discuss about the person's physical life, right? So we'll discuss and we'll say, oh, you know, they, they would have loved to watch uh, Tampa win the Super Bowl. Or, you know, you can discuss all these physical things about the person. And that's okay because we relate to our loved ones in a physical manner. But don't suffice with just that because that's not going to elevate the soul of your loved one talking about how much they liked pizza and we're going to eat pizza in their merit or how much they like the sports team. What's going to elevate them is the good deeds. And so make sure on a, on a day of a yard site, not just, of course, like I said, we should you know, we are still physical people on this earth and we relate to our loved ones in that physical manner, but appreciate also that they are in a place where they would really appreciate us not just talking about how much they like pizza and sushi and, and how funny they were, but also do good deeds in their merit because that will enable to uplift their souls to a place where they currently cannot uplift themselves and they need us to do that. And this will explain what is the power of Kaddish. If you look at the Kaddish, the Kaddish says nothing about the deceased, right? Everybody says, oh, I'm going to say Kaddish for my loved one. 
they got to say the Kaddish, who's going to say Kaddish for the 12 months? You look at the Kaddish, it has nothing to do with anybody who passed away. Look at it. Let's read the English over here. Exalted and hallowed be his great name, congregation says Amen, throughout the world which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingship, bring forth his redemption, and hasten the coming of his Messiah in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the entire house of Israel speedily and soon, let us say Amen. So when you look at the Kaddish, there's nothing there about the seeds. So what's the idea? And the answer is that the Kaddish is praising God. And so when the child of the person who's deceased is, is coming to synagogue and praising God, that's going to uplift the soul of the person who passed away. Because again, it's, it's a good deed being done on their behalf. So let's read over here. Um, <clears throat> this is from Rabbi Steinsaltz, who actually passed away this year. Very famous. Uh, he translated the whole Talmud. <clears throat> it's like this. Every member of the community of Israel is, in a sense, among those who establish and proclaim God's sovereignty in the world. As the verse states, you are my witness, God declares. Therefore, the absence of any individual creates a void as it were in God's sovereignty in the world. In order to fill this void, others need to intensify their work and to proclaim on their own behalf, as well as on the behalf of the deceased, exalted and hallowed be his great name. With this perspective, we can understand why we're saying the Kaddish elevates the soul of the deceased. The aggregate of the person's actions and accomplishments in the world define his or her life. However, the tally of the person's achievements does not necessarily conclude at the moment of death. A complete evaluation of a person's accomplishments must also include all that is accomplished as a result of the person's inspiration and actions. Therefore, when those who remain alive, and especially the person's children and descendants, whose very existence is credit for their forebears, do good deeds and they contribute to the deceased balance of accomplishments, they contribute to the deceased balance of accomplishments. For although the deceased is no longer active in this world, his or her actions continue to inspire positive deeds and actions. This is why the recitation of the Kaddish elevates the soul because God is being exalted in the world as a result and in the name of the deceased. And this will also explain something I said last week. If you recall last week, I said that Kaddish is actually on the lowest rung of things you can do for, your, for someone who passed away. Doing good deeds, doing a mitzvah is higher. Why? As we see now, because the Kaddish is just praising God. A good deed is actually doing something, you know, a deed that God actually wants and so, therefore, although Kaddish is very important, of course, we do need to praise God. You can also praise God when you say the book of Psalms to yourself. You don't need to actually say the Kaddish. It's not to take away from saying the Kaddish, but um, that's why doing a physical mitzvah uh, will elevate the soul even higher. Um, so that is, uh, once we have this appreciation for heaven and hell, what paradise is, and the, the souls are stuck, so to speak, in what they've done, uh, why our actions on this earth are so beneficial to our loved ones who have passed away because we can elevate them now to places where they cannot get to themselves. And so that's the greatest favor that you can do for them. And it's something they look forward to and something they appreciate very, very much. And now we get to the final point that I wanted to mention uh, that although we spent all day today discussing about hell and heaven and how they are created by our actions and that God is not petty. They are, they are just a consequence, a natural outgrowth of our actions. And truthfully, uh, the, the hell is just a cleansing process through which we can ultimately experience the paradise. I don't want leading to the mistake that Judaism has a hyper-focus on hell and heaven. Uh, Judaism has a hyper-focus on getting to the world to come. Uh, hopefully none of us here are rushing for it. Uh, some religions have a hyper-focus on it. In Judaism, it's not our hyper-focus. It's important to understand, but it's important to understand because it tells us the value of our actions. By understanding what heaven and hell is, as I said earlier, it tells us the value of our actions. And truthfully, the value of our actions is the action, is the action itself, not just the reward of the action, but the action itself. So for example, imagine someone today comes out and discovers 
the uh, cure for COVID. Okay, they, they come up with some chemical, not a chemical, God forbid, eco-friendly uh, something. They're going to send a, a plane all over the earth and it's going to fog the earth and it's not going to have any negative environmental effects and it's going to get rid of COVID, okay? Imagine someone came up with that and, in, in, uh, in, and it works and this scientist is hailed as the greatest scientist ever and they are called because of the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, the Nobel Peace Prize is not, is not the true reward for what they did. That's not what they are looking for in their actions. What they are actually looking for is the actual deed itself. Just being able to rid the world of COVID itself, that's the beauty of what they've done. And so although we can focus on the afterlife, but our focus on the afterlife should only be how much it tells us how great our actions are today, how important our actions are today, that this action creates such a wonderful aura that we will get to experience in the afterlife that tells us how powerful action is now. Yes, we live in this physical earth. So when we do the deed, when we do the mitzvah, we don't feel the power of it. We only get to feel it once we pass away. But what that tells us is how powerful and important and beautiful our action is here. And so our focus should not be on the world to come, but actually trying to do the good deeds because of the power that they are right now. And so again, while we discuss afterlife and the rewards, that should be secondary to what is most, utmost important that is the here and now and focusing on our own good deeds in this earth. And uh, so let's read over here. Um, the primary reward in the hereafter is the soul returning to its source and uniting with God. Certainly, however, it is even greater when the soul connects with God here in this world through the study of Torah and the performance of the mitzvot, for that is the purpose of creation. So living here, focusing on the here now, being present, you know, that's a big thing today. It's a big thing, mindful, being present. You, when we get too focused in religion and heaven and, and hell, uh, we're not being present. We're not being here in the here and now. And Judaism is, is all about being present, being here uh, right now. And this explains a famous statement that was said by the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi. He used to say like this, I want nothing at all. I don't want your paradise. I don't want your world to come. I want nothing but you alone. What did he mean? What did he mean? He means exactly what we were just saying now is that... Um, Paradise is great. World to come is great, but that's not what I'm working towards. I just want to have a connection with God and I want to, I want to have that right now. I don't need the heaven. I don't need the hell. I don't need this. I don't care about it all. I just want to have that wonderful connection with God. And uh, although now we cannot fully experience it uh, with our physical eyes and our physical senses, but the deepest intimacy with God can be experienced right here and now in the course of everyday lives. And this is the world of action. This is the world where it's at. And so although uh, we have all this heaven and hell discussion, that is why in Judaism, we don't discuss it too much because the main thing is the here and now. In fact, if you look in the Torah, uh, it doesn't actually ever discuss the spiritual heaven and hell. It only discusses physical reward and punishment because the Torah actually doesn't get theological ever. If you actually look at the Torah, Torah never gets into theology. Uh, it's actually in the appendix in the book discusses this question. Uh, the Torah is focused on what we have to do because that's what's most important. We have to know, we have to get the right things done. We have to study the theology to understand why, but ultimately we should focus on the present. Uh, can I do one more good deed today? Can I do one more good thing today? Can I make the world a brighter, and better place? And so just to recap everything we said, uh, uh, God's reward and punishment are out of this world, right? I like to say, right? Um, God doesn't pay a lot, but the, but the benefits are out of this world. Anyways, so uh, um, ultimately, the world beyond is something we cannot fully understand because it's spiritual. 
it's non-physical, so we cannot fully grasp it. But today, hopefully, you gained a couple of better perspectives on it. But first of all, the reward and punishment are a natural consequence of our reactions. They're not arbitrary decisions. When we do a mitzvah, we forge an intimate relationship with God. We can experience that in the afterlife. Uh, and if we do a, a, a misdeed, when we do something wrong, it diminishes the soul's capacity from experiencing it and therefore needs to suffer uh, through its misdeeds in hell, which is a limited time period, to ultimately allow it to enter heaven and to experience uh, its reward for that. In the Garden of Eden, the soul constantly goes higher and higher in, in heaven, but we down here can add on and, and tack on a few brownie points, so to speak, but really it's more than that, uh, to our loved ones after they have uh, passed away, something that they cannot get to themselves. And finally, if all of heaven and hell is important, how much more so is it important what we do right now here? And so we should not get too distracted by the heaven and hell. Of course, for our loved ones, we think about it. But for ourselves, don't get too distracted. Focus on what you need to get done right now. And that is today's class. And thank you for joining. And now...